I'd like to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and look with me to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 8 will be in chapter 8, verse 20, through the end of the chapter today. I don't know about you, but there's a joy to singing Christmas hymns. And yet, at the same time, it's really hard to believe we're singing Christmas hymns. It's that time of the year in which we celebrate the incarnation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Every year, a group of volunteers spend some time decorating the church. And this year, the same thing has taken place. A group of ladies got together and decorated for us. But I have to say that the decorations this year are just a little more, well, how shall we say it? Orderly and beautiful and placed at just the right position. And I have to say, something happened this year in decoration that's never happened before. The chairman of deacons, Tim Walker, gave oversight to the decorating. (laughs) Thus, the beauty. Exodus chapter 8. By the way, I just want to say it's interesting, but he actually did help decorate. How many churches have a chairman of deacons that has an eye for decoration? I mean, this is really impressive. He decorates for weddings. What else does he do, Julie? Does he decorate your home? No. (laughs) Exodus chapter 8. Exodus chapter 8. We continue our reflection on this text of Scripture as we look to this fourth plague narrative here in Exodus, in this Exodus narrative, all marching us to a pointed position of God's marvelous salvation, His redemption in the life of ancient Israel. And we're going to see that redemption narrative in this text of Scripture. Exodus chapter 8, verses 20 through 32, teaches us that God acts graciously toward His people and toward unbelievers. God acts graciously toward His people and toward unbelievers. This narrative is unfolded in five scenes. The first scene occurs here in verses 20 through 23. It's a familiar scene for us as we've been making our way through these plague narratives. It's the familiar scene of Moses and Aaron confronting Pharaoh. And you'll notice that this narrative begins in some ways just like the first plague narrative. Notice the narrator's comments for us here beginning in verse 20. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water. You remember the first plague narrative. Moses and Aaron turning the Nile River into blood. That occurred where? At the Nile. Thank you, buddy. At the water, right? So there's a hint that these plague narratives are happening, being coupled together. So another series of plagues, you might say, are coming Pharaoh's way. In other words, when Pharaoh saw Moses and Aaron early in the morning, at the water, Pharaoh had to be thinking to himself, "Uh uh-oh, not these two characters again. He would have known exactly what was about to take place. He would have been familiar, if you will, with the conversation. And Moses and Aaron are to say to him, The middle part of verse 20 and part of verse 20, thus says the Lord, let my people go so that they may serve me or that they may worship me or else 
Verse 21, if you will not let the people go, behold, I will send swarms of flying insects like flies or mosquitoes on you. And not just on you, on your servants and your people and into your houses and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with the swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on this day, but on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies or mosquitoes shall be there for what purpose that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus, <coughs> I will put division. Or some of your Bibles will translate this verse in verse 23. I will set redemption between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this sign shall happen. A familiar scene, is it not? Moses and Aaron have already been told from the very beginning of this narrative of what their task would be that they would have to go before Pharaoh and make a declaration to Pharaoh to let his people go. For God desired for his people to come to a land flowing with milk and, and honey. God desired to have his people in, in his land so that they might freely worship Yahweh. And yet Yahweh from the very beginning had given promise to Pharaoh and to, sorry, to Moses and to Aaron that the task would be difficult. This would not be easy. But you might be thinking, along with Moses by this point, how much longer? While God had promised to Moses that this was going to be a process, we never read in the text of Scripture that God said to Moses at any point that it would take two plagues, four plagues, eight plagues, or ten plagues. So what we know on behalf of Moses at this point is Moses at every turn is responding to God. How? By faith. Moses is responding in obedience to God, not knowing exactly what would take place. There is one character in this entire narrative that knows absolutely everything, and it's not Pharaoh, and it's not Moses. God knows all. So Moses, yet again, responds in faith. He goes before Pharaoh. He makes this declaration, let my people go. And then notice the next scene. It occurs in verse 24. The next scene is the plague itself. It's actually going to take place. The plague is going to happen, verse 24. And notice how the text defines it. And Yahweh did so. Yahweh is responding consistent with his word. What Pharaoh, Moses, and Aaron, the Egyptians, and the Israelites are learning through this process is that God will absolutely always respond in a manner consistent with his word. Verses 20, 21, 22, and 23, there's a swarm of flies coming. Verse 24, what does the Bible tell us in this scene? And the Lord did so. At every turn, whether the Nile turning into blood or gnats or frogs, God is seen as the one directing every moment of this narrative. 
There are moments in life, and I am sure even moments in this narrative where the Egyptians and even the Israelites were wondering who really is in control. You might remember all the way back to Exodus chapter 2, we have this beautiful depiction of faith on behalf of the nation of Israel. Listen to these words, Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. During those, listen to what the text says, many days, how long was the nation of Israel in bondage? Two weeks? Ten years? 400 plus years. The text defines it as during those many, numerous, uncountable days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel did what? They groaned because of their slavery and they cried out and their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abram and Isaac and with Jacob and God saw the people of Israel and God knew. We already have this narrative set before us of this sense of hopelessness among the nation of Israel But Israel knew there was one place they could go to let their voice be heard, and it was directly to God. And now the narrative has started. But did Israel get freedom? Did they get what they wanted in Moses' and Aaron's first request to Pharaoh? No, now we are several months past the first plague narrative. And even further past the first miracle where Moses threw the rod down on the ground and it became a serpent. See, friends, there are moments in our lives, just like in the lives of the nation of Israel and Egypt, where we wonder, is God really in control. Perhaps you're facing a moment like that even now in your own life. Where you face a moment of difficulty and you wonder in your heart and in your mind, can I really trust God? Friend, come back and hear the words of Exodus chapter 8, verse 24. And the Lord did so. You might not experience relief today. You might not get an answer to your soul's troubles at this moment. But settle in your heart now that God is one who always responds consistent with his nature and his word and his very being. And while redemption and while relief from sorrow and trouble might not happen today, as we sung just a few moments ago, Come, thou long-expected Jesus. God is, God has, God will always respond in a manner consistent with His Word. Would you take hope in that God today? Would you trust in this God who always does so? The plague happens. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' house. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land, notice what the text of Scripture says. How was the land affected? The land was ruined by the swarm of flies. Now take your finger for just a moment and travel with me over to Psalm 74. 
Make a trip with me over quickly to Psalm, sorry, Psalm 78. One of the things that happens regularly throughout the Psalms is this recounting of God's acts to his people. And listen to how Psalm 78 verse 45 reflects on this narrative of these swarming flies. He sent among them swarms of flies. And what did these swarms of flies do? They devoured them. Now the Hebrew word that many of our Bibles translates as flies is somewhat ambiguous in nature, but we do know that these were some type of flying insects. I can imagine that these flying insects were the mosquitoes right from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. The Lord blew up a hurricane and sent those things over to Egypt to attack. You know what I'm talking about, right? You've been out on a summer night on a camping trip trying to uh, have some time outside, and those things are just attacking you nonstop, and there's not a bottle of off that will ever work against those things, right? And what is your sense? These things are devouring me. I, I can't stand this. This is ruining every moment of my life. I need some reprieve. So can you imagine every ounce Every inch of land, of space around you filled with the biggest biting mosquitoes you've ever seen? The answer is no. But notice what the text says they were everywhere, and the land was completely ruined by them. In this next scene, we move from the plague itself to this dialogue between Pharaoh and Moses. It occurs in verses 25 through 29. And Pharaoh is now in a position where he's ready to bargain with God. Bargain with Moses, ultimately bargain with God. So look what happens, verse 25. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Okay, I've had enough. I get it. Go. Sacrifice to your God. But notice how he defines it. Within the land. Within the land of Egypt. But there's a problem with the land of Egypt, is it not? What did the Bible just say to us about the land of Egypt? Notice the end of verse 24, but the land of Egypt was what? Ruined. This is not the land that God has promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is not, the, this is not Canaan land. This is not the fulfillment of, of God's promise to his people. So Moses is going to respond, verse 26. But Moses says it would not be right to do so. For the offerings we shall sacrifice to Yahweh our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, they will stone us, will they not? There's a thought that in the Egyptian mindset, for example, there was a sheep god. And you can imagine how abominable it would be if the Egyptians saw sheep as being some type of God to see the Israelites slaughtering their God. And so Moses says, wait a minute. This is an untenable position. This isn't going to work. If we do this, you're going to kill us. Verse 27, we must go a three days journey in other words, we must go afar off into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God just as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice 
to Yahweh, your God, in the wilderness, only, please don't go too far off. You see the banter back and forth? You see the bargaining back and forth? Hey, cry out to your God and have him stop this. I'll let you go. Okay, great. We want to go, but we want to go a far piece off. And Pharaoh's like, well, okay, I can't send all the flies, so I'm going to let you go, but, but I really don't want you to go all that far. Then look at Pharaoh's request at the end of verse 28. Plead for me. Pharaoh has now come to learn that there is indeed one person controlling the narrative, and it ain't he. Even Pharaoh, this pagan God you remember from chapter 5, the Lord uh, Moses says to Pharaoh, let my people go. And you remember how Pharaoh responds to Moses? Who is Yahweh? Chapter 5, Pharaoh doesn't even want to acknowledge that there is a divine being who reigns supreme. Chapter 8, please beg your God on behalf of me to send relief. Verse 29, then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of the flies may depart from Pharaoh, <coughs> from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. We saw this language of tomorrow with the frogs. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. There is one who keeps his word. And there is one who continually reneges on his word. There is one who is faithful. There is one who is consistent. There is one who is unfaithful and untrustworthy that can't be counted on. And no matter how mighty Pharaoh might appear, no matter how mighty the world system of the Egyptians might appear in the hearts and the minds of God's people and among the Egyptians, they are learning the futility of a pagan worldview and the supremacy of Yahweh. Pharaoh knows, by, Moses knows by now, Pharaoh can't always be trusted, can he? The frogs make intercession for me. When? Tomorrow. And I'll let you go. But what happens to Pharaoh? Does he let the people go? No. Notice this next scene that occurs here in verses 30 and 31. Moses is going to intercede on behalf of Egypt. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarm of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one fly remained. Again, God moves consistent with his word. And look at this last scene that occurs in this last verse, verse 32. Pharaoh continues in his rebellion, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also. Pharaoh continued in stubbornness. Pharaoh continued to set his heart in opposition to Yahweh, and he did not let the people go. 
There are several points that we can draw from in this text of Scripture that teach us lessons as we too journey along this path of faith. First, I want us to see back in verse 22 that God has acted to show His might to all people. Look with me again in verse 22 of the text. That you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. We've already had this journey. To whom is God seeking to reveal himself? Who does God want to know? That he himself is is Yahweh. Who does God want to know? That he is all-powerful and almighty and all-knowing. Who does God want to know that there is one divine being who reigns supreme and not a multitude of gods? Egypt or Israel or both? We've already seen throughout the narrative, and you can track it, that God is concerned with all people knowing His might and His power. In the context of chapter 8, God wants Egypt and Israel to know that He is working simultaneously. At the same time, among the nation of Israel and among the Egyptians. In fact, when we come to the text of Scripture here in chapter 8, God even wants the nation of Egypt to know, He wants Pharaoh to know, where is God in this narrative? Where is Yahweh in the midst of this entire story? Where is Yahweh situated in the context of this passage of Scripture? He's in the land of Egypt. He's among the pagan people. He's among His people. There isn't a place where God cannot be. But the text specifically tells us that Yahweh is in the land. He's showing his supremacy. There isn't a being, there isn't a divine being, there isn't a God in Egypt who can keep Yahweh out of a land of Egypt that Yahweh himself has created. God is acting in a way to show the Egyptians and the Israelites that he is simultaneously at work among both groups, declaring his goodness and his glory. God is, as I noted at the beginning of this sermon, God is acting to display his character both to his people and to unbelievers. I want you to know that I am Yahweh. But this text is also a foreshadowing, friends. It's a foreshadowing of God's work through His Word among His people. How does God provide redemption for His people? God provides redemption for His people through His Word. Look back at the text again in verse 23. Thus I will put a division. Or I noted a few minutes ago that we could translate this. Thus I will set redemption. 
I will set redemption between my people and your people tomorrow. This sign will happen. God is going to set this redemption about. How? And providing his judgment and his wrath to the Egyptians while at the same time saving the, the Israelites. And what was the promise? I'm going to send these swarms of flies and they shall not touch the land of what? Goshen. God is providing redemption to the Israelites. How? Through his word. What God speaks will indeed take place. What God has spoken, what God has declared, indeed will happen. But this is also what the psalmist told us in Psalm 119. Look again with me to the psalm, Psalm 119. Psalm 119, 105, and 130. Psalm 119, 105, and 130. You know this psalm and verse, Psalm 119, 105 very well. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Look at, look at verse 30, 130. The unfolding of your words do what? Gives light. It, in, it imparts understanding to the simple. Israel is learning that God provides redemption through His Word. But friends, the culmination of God's redemption provided through His Word is most clearly highlighted in the giving of His Word, the giving of His Son, Jesus Christ. And who is Jesus? The light of the world. Jesus provides redemption for God's people who by faith would trust in Him as the one who came to rescue them from their sins. This text is a foreshadowing of what God would ultimately do for His people in providing redemption through the sending of His Son, Jesus Christ. And friends, while that redemption has taken place, it's been accomplished through Jesus, we still wait for its fulfillment. For we are not recipients yet of the fullness of God's redemption. See, God's redemption is seen in three stages. Justification. That moment in which you and I, by faith, trust in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, God, through Jesus, by His Spirit, makes a legal declaration against your life and against my life. He makes a judgment. He declares us as no longer being guilty, but being innocent. This is what justification means. A declaration has been made against your life. You are no longer guilty. You are innocent. You have now been given the righteousness of Christ. It's been imputed. It's been transferred to your heart and to your life. That's the moment in which we trust in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then we live life. And that process is called sanctification. That's the process that we're going through at this very moment. It's one of the reasons why the people of God gather on a weekly basis. We gather to hear the word proclaimed, to sing the word, to pray, so that we might grow, as Peter says, in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We should participate in spiritual disciplines on a regular basis so that we might journey well across this process of sanctification. 
It's a process whereby every day, by God's Spirit, we are being made more into the image of Christ. We are being sanctified. We are being made holy. That's the period of time in which we are in now, friends. But that process is not complete until glorification. The process of completion and glorification is when Jesus returns. And this is why we call this period of time at this season of the year, Advent. We are awaiting the return of Christ. We are awaiting glorification in the same way that the nation of Israel awaited that first coming of her Messiah, Jesus. And friends, this text is a reminder to you and me, God always keeps his promises. But there's one who doesn't. There is one who doesn't. Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, friends, represented a system. Pharaoh represented a worldview. And that worldview and that system and that person were set in direct opposition to God. And friends, like the nation of Israel, we too, as God's people, live as a minority group of people awaiting our full redemption. We live in a world that is set in complete, direct opposition to God and His Word. But like Moses and Aaron, friends, you can never compromise enough with the culture to ever gain their favor. Moses and Aaron remind us. They serve as examples to us and for us of how we as God's people are to live as a persecuted group of people, a minority group of people among a worldview that is set in direct opposition to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus himself knew a little bit of what it was like to live his life in opposition to a worldview set against the truths of the kingdom of God. In John chapter 16, Jesus spoke these words. Verse 2, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father, nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember I told them to you. We, as evangelical Christians, have had the blessing of living in a culture in the southern part of the United States where in large ways our overarching worldview has been the majority and not the minority. And for too many of us, we don't know what it's like to live in the minority. But we no longer live in Mayberry. We live in a culture that loves to highlight and celebrate their opposition to the truths of God's Word. How will you respond? How will we respond? 
How will we respond when the United States Congress affirms and passes laws that codify gay marriage into the law code of our country and we speak against it? Will we compromise? Will we change our convictions for momentary sense of security? Moses and Aaron serve as an example to you and me that we should never compromise the truths of God's Word when we live in the minority. But I want to remind you of this dialogue for just a quick moment. How does Moses dialogue with Pharaoh? How does Moses interact with Pharaoh? Does he go before Pharaoh and give him the big middle finger? Does he go before Pharaoh and tell him he's an idiot and a moron? And how stupid he is? And can't you clearly see you're not really God? Can't you figure out by now that your persecution against God's people is not going to turn out well for you? Or does Moses dialogue with respect and conviction? Jesus himself reminds us of our need in these moments to be wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. And we can be convictional people who speak the truth of God's Word with the humility of Christ. We're going to learn some unfortunate, hard, interesting lessons over the course of the next few years. But don't be surprised, friends. For Jesus Himself has even warned us. They will persecute you. And they will seek to kill you. This is why Jesus, friends, said to those who would seek to come after Him, Thank you for the concert. This is why Jesus said to those who would seek to come after Him to count the cost. To be willing to take up your cross. To deny yourself and follow Jesus. To take up your cross was a willingness to give your life for the cause of Christ. Is that the Christianity you're following today, friends? Is that the Christ that you're following today? Is that the cost you've weighed to follow Christ? While this narrative reminds us that God acts graciously toward His people, He has set redemption for His people. The text also reminds us that God has acted graciously toward those who do not believe. Peter has told us in 2 Peter chapter 3, Hear these words. 
The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some of you count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, friends, the fact that God allows Pharaoh to have another moment of breath, even though Pharaoh at every turn acts in rebellion against God, is an act of graciousness and mercy on behalf of God to unbelieving Pharaoh. This text reminds us. This text highlights for us. This text shows us what the consequences of an unrepentant life brings about. See, friends, you might be able to think that you have escaped the wrath of God at this very moment in your rebellion against God. Perhaps you're here this morning and your rebellion against God is not a rebellion that manifests itself and that you're going out and literally killing your neighbor. You've not picketed the front of Woodlawn Baptist Church. But your rebellion does not have to be highlighted in that way for you to have a rebellious heart set against God. A rebellious heart set against God is one that rejects Jesus as Lord. A rebellious heart set against God is one that is unwilling to submit his or her life to the reign of Christ. A rebellious heart is a believer who continues to go back to that sin that provides a momentary sense of pleasure. and won't stop. Yes, you might experience a few discomforts. Your car breaks. Or your roof collapses. Or whatever it might be that you see as a sign of God's judgment. But at the end of the day, you look around and you think, wow, everything's okay. I'm going to continue to live my life in rebellion against God. The culmination of this text ultimately shows us what happens to those who live their lives in rebellion against God. It doesn't end well for Pharaoh. And friend, your rebellion won't end well for you. It will end in eternal damnation and separation from God. Would you trust in God's Word today, friend? Would you hope in God's Word today? Believer, would you trust in God's Word today? Would you hope in God's Word today? Would you see that God is acting graciously toward all? Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the revelation of Yourself. We thank You, God, that You have acted graciously toward all people. And that you act graciously toward all people, even at this moment. Would you take a few moments where you're seated today and respond and reflect to the preaching of God's Word? If you're here today and you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, are you trusting 
completely and firmly in God's Word? As you face a storm in your life, as you face a difficult moment, will you trust in God's Word? Will you see this text, this narrative that reminds us that God is always acting consistent with His Word? And would you take refuge in that today? <coughs> Friend, if you're here today and you're not a believer, would you see that God has set redemption before you through His Son, Jesus? Would you trust in Christ today? Would you stop your rebellion against God? Would you humble yourself before God today and confess Jesus as Lord? For the scripture says, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In just a few moments, we're going to stand and corporately respond to the preaching of God's word. As we stand to sing, friends, if you have questions about what it means to trust in Christ, myself and Pastor Travis will be standing down front. We would delight in sharing with you how you can trust in Christ. But friend, you don't have to come forward to speak with one of us. Please feel free to turn to someone seated around you and ask them how you can trust in Christ, for there are plenty of people here that would delight in sharing with you how you can trust in Christ. Secondly, Perhaps you are facing a moment in which you are tempted to doubt God, to doubt His Word, and you'd like for one of us to pray with you, that God would strengthen your faith, that God would strengthen your resolve. We would delight in praying for you. Perhaps you're facing one of those situations in which due to your faith, you're being persecuted. And that persecution is causing difficulty in your home, in your workforce. And you'd like for one of us to pray that God would strengthen your faith and your resolve. We would delight in shepherding your heart by praying for you. Or thirdly, maybe God has placed upon your heart that this is a congregation in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with God this would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of this faith family. Lord, as we respond to you now, may our response be pleasing, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.